morning, Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington. Today is Tuesday, April the 5th. Here are some of the stories we're covering for you this morning. South Sudan President Salva Kiir and his Vice President Riek Mashar agreed to resume talks about integrating their rival forces. It, it addresses the most fundamental issue the agreement has faced in the last uh, two years, and that's how you structure the security sector of the country. Rwanda's Court of Appeals upholds the 25-year jail term sentence of Paul Rusesawagina, convicted of engaging in terrorism in the country's southwest. Speaking in Rwanda, Justice Kamir says the Court of Appeal dismissed the claims made by the defense lawyers that the sentence of Paul Sesamagina should be reduced just because he has never been convicted. And South Africa's tourism industry returns to normal after the Omicron COVID variant curbed international travel. We'll have those stories and more coming up right here on The Break Africa. Stay tuned. And for our top story in South Sudan, President Salva Kiir and his vice president, Dr. Riek Mashar, have agreed to resume talks about integrating their forces under a unified command following weeks of escalating tensions between the two sides. The ruling SPLM, headed by President Salva Kiir, signed a peace deal with Mashar's SPLM-IO in 2018 after years of fighting between them. However, the power-sharing deal has been slow to implement due to disagreements over some elements, including the integration of the rival forces into one army. This time around, both sides say they are recommitted to the peace deal, agreeing to abide by a previous ceasefire and speed up the integration of their forces. So what is behind the slow implementation of the peace deal and what are the prospects for its success? For that, I reached Agostino Tingmayai, the research director of the Sud Institute, a Juba-based think tank. The recent uh, understanding between the parties, in my opinion, is a breakthrough uh, because it, it, it addresses the most fundamental issue the agreement has faced in the last uh, two years, and that's uh, how you structure the security sector of the country. Uh, over over the two-year uh, period, there's been a uh, standoff. Uh, literally, there are two parties, particularly the IO and the IG, not agreeing on uh, basically what's called the command structure. In this case, uh, how you structure the security sector. And so yesterday or day before uh, marked the beginning of, of that understanding. So it's, it's a breakthrough. It's necessary because it's uh, a fundamental chapter in the agreement, which has not been, we have not seen a lot of progress in the last year. And what, why has the implementation of the of, of some of the key elements of uh, the 2018 peace deal been slow? What has been holding them back? Uh, well, so there there are uh, fundamental issues. There there are numerous ones uh, that one can list. Uh, but but most important is that the parties haven't really uh, demonstrated, uh, based on uh, a bunch of reports, uh, political will to basically move the agreement forward. And Chapter 2 has been one of the places where uh, they have not agreed uh, much in the last few years. There are other 
places in the agreement where progress is being made, especially chapter four, which deals with the economic management. Uh, a lot of progress is being made there. And then you have other chapters, um, uh, which deals, for example, uh, formation of the hybrid um, court, uh, progress being in place uh, so far. And then, of course, the formation of the government as a whole um, saw some progress as well. But, but this chapter, uh, which is basically the basis for what happens next uh, in terms of the stabilization of the country has been a thorn um, in the process. So so there has been fighting in recent weeks that, that have led to the SPLMIO, Vice President Riyak Mashal's side, suspending its participation in the peace deals oversight mechanisms. If both sides are still kind of distrustful of each other, how will this new deal change the dynamic? Um, quite, yeah. So, so that's, that's correct. Um, in the Apennine region, uh, there were clutches uh, alleged to be between the two parties. Uh, but looking uh, a little closer to the situation itself, uh, it seems that it was the SPLMIO that split and part of it joining um, the government or claiming to have joined the government. And basically, uh, whether it had to do with them leaving uh, the I.O. or something else, clutches actually occurred. Uh, but, but, but again, that is not the only thing that you can emphasize with respect to how the parties have managed the agreement. Uh, you know that there are two principals who uh, haven't um, had a good relationship for decades. And this, uh, to me, seems to be a fundamental problem. So as, as long as you have the two our principles are working together, there's a possibility of mistrust between the two, and that, and that has a role to play in what happens with the implementation of the agreement. That was Agostino Tengmayai, the research director of the Sud Institute, a Juba-based think tank. In Rwanda, the Court of Appeal in Kigali upheld the 25-year jail term sentence of Paul Rusesabajina, convicted of participating in terror activities in southwestern Rwanda. Monday's verdict confirms the sentence the country's High Court Chamber of International and Cross-Border Crimes rendered last September. Eugene Wimana has more from Rwanda's capital, Kigali. After nearly eight hours of reading out the ruling, Rwanda's Court of Appeal upheld the decision to imprison Paul Shesawajina for 25 years for his conviction on terror-related crimes. The appeals justice rejected the prosecution's request that Shesawajina severe a longer sentence. Shesawajina and 20 co-defendants were convicted last year on charges that tied him to several attacks that left nine people dead and many others injured and the property destroyed or looted. Justice Emmanuel Kameri read out the court's decision. Speaking in Rwanda, Justice Kamara says the Court of Appeal dismissed claims made by the defense lawyers that the sentence of Paul Sesamagina should be reduced just because he has never been convicted with a criminal offense before. Kamara says the sentence was merited because of the crimes that he committed. The National Prosecution appealed the original sentence, arguing that the prison terms given to Sesamagina and his 20 co-accused were lenient. Sesabajina and his family have branded the trial last year a sham. He boycotted Monday's proceedings. A hotel manager Sesabajina is credited with saving hundreds of lives during the 1994 genocide perpetrated against the Tutsis and murdered Hutus. A Hollywood film made him world famous. He left Rwanda several years ago and lived in the United States and Belgium, where he is a citizen. He and his family say he was abducted nearly two years ago 
and taken to Chigali. The government denies he was abducted. Rusia Sawajina has become a vocal critic to Kagame, who some human rights groups have accused of becoming an authoritarian. Rusia Sawajina was a leader of an opposition coalition in exile, the Rwanda Movement of a Democratic Change, MRCD. Its armed wing, the National Liberation Front, Evelyn, had been accused of carrying out attacks in Rwanda earlier in 2018. Rwanda's government has denied the allegations that Rusia Magina and his co-defendants have been treated unfairly. Ejene Uimana, for VOA News, Chigali, Rwanda. Tourism in South Africa is returning to normal after the Omicron COVID variant brought international travel to a standstill last year. President Sarah Ramaphosa has removed COVID-19 restrictions and tour operators hope that will bring a surge of holiday goers and combat record unemployment. Linda Giftash reports from Johannesburg. Tour groups arriving in Johannesburg are small, but tour companies are thankful they're here and hopeful that tourism is rebounding after two years of pandemic damage. Tourism took an especially hard hit when the Omicron variant halted international travel in November. But that has changed now that the infection rate is low and dropping, and most COVID-19 restrictions have been lifted. Sonny Tobogo is a tour guide for the South African company MoAfrica Tours. From um, the past two weeks, I'm smiling. I can say now, I can look after my problems. I can say now, sign is back to the field. It's because I see I've been getting tours, and we are happy that borders are open, flights are coming in, but slowly and surely getting there. Wayne Barnes is the sales manager for Mo Africa Tours. We've had to bring back two staff members back into the office, including our operations manager and other sales assistant. We've managed to re-employ three of our guides full-time and currently have another four guides freelancing for us as well. South Africa, the hardest-hit country by the pandemic in Africa, scrapped COVID test requirements in March for fully vaccinated visitors. Restrictions on large gatherings have also been eased, allowing visitors to attend sporting and arts events again. David Frost is the CEO of the Southern Africa Tourism Services Association. We are seeing um, quite a significant um, uptake and, and flights being scheduled. I would imagine the 2022 high season from September through to March will be pretty much um, at a pre-COVID level. While business is rebounding, there's still a long road to recovery and not just for tourism. Jobless numbers for the fourth quarter of 2021 saw unemployment hit a record 35%. Davi Root is the chief economist for South Africa-based asset management firm Efficient Group. The most important uh, reason why we have high levels of unemployment is because of lack of economic growth. Even if you have weakly skilled people in your country, and even if you have all sort of other problems in the economy, but if the economy grows strongly, people will find a job somewhere. Economists warn that South Africa will not see major growth anytime soon. But in March, it did secure nearly $23 billion in investments at the annual South African Investment Conference. MoAfrica's tour guide, Tobogo, says he's also seen changes in daily life. Talking about the local business, industrial areas are opening up for people. And then more offices are opening up. Remember, people used to work indoors at home. But now we see even the traffic volume on roads is getting more open, more bigger. It tells that something is changing. We are 
moving out of the disaster slowly but surely. President Cyril Ramaphosa in March said South Africa would soon remove the last remaining significant COVID measure, a national state of disaster that regulates the country's COVID-19 rules. Linda Giftash for VOA News, Johannesburg. Daybreak Africa continues. The World Health Organization reports that 13 million people die every year from environmental causes, including more than 7 million who are killed each year from exposure to air pollution. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. New data released by the World Health Organization confirms that practically the whole world is breathing in unhealthy air. The WHO is calling for urgent action to curb the use of fossil fuels to reduce air pollution levels. This, it says, threatened the health of billions of people, leading to the preventable deaths of millions. Sophie Gumi is technical officer in WHO's Department of Environment, Climate Change and Health. She says the data show air quality is poorest, notably in the eastern Mediterranean, Southeast Asian and African regions. Most of the 7 million deaths, they come from, uh, from, uh, they come from low and middle income countries. Indeed, they do. Um, it doesn't mean that uh, in the high income countries are not impacted. Uh, you know, when we, we are using mortality to calculate the impact of air pollution on health, however, we are very much aware that you should actually count for morbidity. I mean, all the disease that it creates, all the there are a lot of costs associated with air pollution, which is not necessarily captured in the death. The WHO report says significant harm is being done by even low level of many air pollutants. It says particulate matter can penetrate deep into the lungs and enter the bloodstream. This can cause cardiovascular disease, stroke, and respiratory impacts. It says nitrogen oxide, or NO2, can cause asthma and other respiratory diseases. The director of WHO's Department of Environment, Climate Change and Health, Maria Nera, says particulate matter can affect almost every organ in the body. She calls this a major health issue, one which overlaps with the causes of climate change. As such, she says, the causes of air pollution should be tackled in a similar fashion. We need to accelerate the transition to clean, modern and sustainable renewable sources of energy. I think we will all agree that our dependence on fossil fuels for for, for uh, generating our electric, our energy is uh, it needs to change if we want to protect our health. WHO recommends measures including building safe and affordable public transport systems, implementing stricter vehicle emissions, investing in energy-efficient housing and power generation, and improving industry and municipal waste management. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. And let's go to West Africa in Nigeria, where officials of the Nigerian Railway Corporation, or NRC, say they can't account for 168 people following an attack by gunmen on a train last Monday in northern Kaduna State that left eight people dead. Suspected bandits blew up the truck on the Abuja-Kaduna route, derailed the train and opened fire on passengers and abducted an unknown number of people. Timothy Obiezu reports from Abuja. The managing director of the Nigerian Railway Corporation, Fidet Okiria, gave the update in a statement on Sunday. 
The figure includes 22 cases reported by families to the commission and 146 others. He said the corporation has not been able to contact the passengers via phone numbers they provided while booking the train. He did not specifically say that they had been kidnapped, but last Friday, VOA reported that suspected terrorists made contact with families of missing train passengers for ransom. On Monday, March 28th, armed gangs bombed the Abuja-Kaduna rail tracks, causing a moving train to derail before they opened fire on passengers scampering to safety. The attack has been largely blamed on local criminal groups known as bandits operating in northern Nigeria and has generated widespread criticism toward the government. Ebenezer Oyetakin is a security analyst. It is most unfortunate that we as a nation as a whole, we are appearing more helpless every day in the front of these challenges posed by these terrorists. Nigeria has been fighting gangs for years. Recently, Kaduna has been the most impacted state. The train attack occurred barely two days after gangs invaded the Kaduna airport and killed an official before security forces pushed them back. Kaduna State Governor Nasir El-Rufai has called for foreign mercenaries to be brought in to fight the terrorists. On Monday, in a bid to spot telephone numbers used by criminals, Nigerian authorities ordered telecom operators in the country to bar calls from numbers that cannot be verified under the National Identification Scheme. Experts say the move could have consequences on innocent citizens. The government's measures appear to just be reactive without taking into considerations the implications and uh, what kind of uh, hardship it will visited on Nigerians. Generally, if you decided to go the way you want to go on the registration and synchronization as they are talking about. Last year, in the wake of increase in kidnapping for ransom attacks, Nigerian authorities began a mandatory synchronization of phone numbers with the national identity number. But millions of citizens are yet to support the initiative. Abuja resident Kristen Paul says he's worried about breach of privacy issues. It's not supposed to be an immediate decision. It's supposed to be a long-term decision, a decision that comes with a lot of grassroots education. It's not 100% privacy. And uh, we don't know if we should be giving that out, the numbers that we use to our country. Since the attack, railway authorities have suspended operations along the Abuja-Kaduna route. Timothy Obiezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. And for our final story, the case of a journalist for the Associated Press accused of abetting a government-designated terrorist group for reporting on rebels highlights Ethiopia's decline in media freedom. That's what advocates say. VOA's Salem Solomon has more on this story. Amir Amankiaro is back home with his family after a four-month ordeal in an Ethiopian prison. But the video journalist for the Associated Press could still face jail if convicted of violating anti-terrorism and wartime state of emergency laws. First arrested in November, Amir is accused of illegally communicating with members of a group the government designated as a terrorist organization. Under a state of emergency that was in place until February, journalists could be penalized for interviewing members of armed groups, including the Oromo Liberation Army. 
Amir and a freelancer, Thomas Ngada, were detained but never charged, the AP says. Ian Phillips, vice president of international news at the Associated Press, says the case shows how journalism is being criminalized and reporters harassed in the country. He emphasized that Amir was on a legitimate reporting trip and committed no crime. The crackdown on the media that this case represents, there is truly uh, no uh, accusation, uh, true accusation that can be leveled against Amir. He is a respected, balanced journalist who has covered both sides of the conflict. Um, he's been picked up and this is an arbitrary detention. Zakaria Salalem, a Canada-based Ethiopian journalist whose work has appeared in Al Jazeera, said arrests like this drove him to sign an open letter calling on the government to respect media rights. He said 46 journalists were detained in 2021, making Ethiopia one of the worst jailers of journalists in Africa. The general optimism um, that we had a couple of years ago with the much-heralded reform, with the promises that journalists would be able to operate unperturbed. Um, this has not panned out. Uh, the promises and the pledges did not materialize. And unfortunately, uh, for journalists, the situation uh, is starting to mirror what we saw in 2009, when Ethiopia passed its infamous anti-terror proclamation, uh, which was used to round up journalists en masse. So we had to speak up about a very, very dire situation um, that our colleagues on the ground in Ethiopia are facing. With little coverage of daily life in rebel-controlled regions like Oromia, the work of reporters like Amir is vital, says Zakarias. Very few journalists have been able to gain access to areas under control uh, of the OLA. And what life has been like for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in these areas, much of which have been um, subjected to uh, internet and phone outages, uh, we don't have an uh, an accurate picture of. Amir's lawyer, Taddele Gabramedin, says his client has been ordered to not leave the country until the case is investigated. He's accused of working with foreign media outlets and, quote, spoiling the country's development plans, end quote, through negative reporting. VOA reached out to the Office of the Prime Minister, the Communications Ministry, and the Attorney General's office requesting comment, but received no response. Phillips says it's important to shine a light on cases like this. We will continue to... Uh, cover the story of uh, journalists who are unjustly held. Um, the, this is not uh, acceptable behavior. These are arbitrary detentions. If there, if there is proof of uh, something, then that evidence has to be surfaced and has to go through um, a proper uh, trial process. Um, uh, it's something that is extremely important to us at the AP and to our peer news organizations. For now, Amir is free, but the risk of arrest for those in media is ever-present. Salem Solomon, VOA News, Washington. And that's it for this edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for spending this morning with us. For more African news and features, visit our website at voanews.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, on Instagram, and on Twitter. Just search for VOA Africa. Until next time, I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington, wishing you a great week ahead, Africa. Join me, Heidi Adams, on the next Straight Talk Africa. I'll have an exclusive interview with Wamkele Mene, Secretary General of the African Continental Free Trade Agreement, set to be the world's largest free trade zone. Plus, a new report reveals a link between the media's portrayals of Africa on the next Straight Talk Africa. This Wednesday at 18.30 UTC. 
Hey, sports fans, brighten your day by tuning into the sunny side of sports Monday through Friday at 1630 and 1830 UTC. Join us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash VOA Sunny and on Twitter at VOA Sunny Sports or check out the blog at blogs.voanews.com forward slash Sunny. It's the sunny side of sports right here on the Voice of America. VOA brings you the best in African music on the African beat. African beat showcases the latest and the greatest of contemporary African music. From bobo music to hip life, bonga flavor to sukus, Afrobeat to Dumbolo and Makosa to Kwaito. The African beat on VOA has it all. And it's happening right here, Mondays through Fridays at 09.05 and 20.05 UTC right after the international news. 